0: All right. So last Sunday, I started a new series called Human Failure and Divine Grace. And my intention is to preach the whole first section of 1 Kings from chapter 1 to chapter 11. So as expected, I preached chapter 1 last week. So you would expect I'd be preaching chapter 11 this week. Okay. So I'm going to be preaching chapter 11 this week. Now, the reason why I'm doing that, you'd expect that would be preaching chapter 2. But I want to do chapter 11 and then go back and do 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 for a couple of reasons. First of all, because today is what we're calling Biblical Sexuality Sunday. This is our third year doing this. It's one of the few things. We don't normally like to use the word annual around here because we don't want to be traditionalized. But I suspect we'll probably be doing this for some time to come. This is Biblical Sexuality Sunday. There's plenty of churches across North America that are participating in it. Near the end of my sermon, I'll describe a little bit more about what that's about. Um, but the second reason is, whenever we do a character study in the Bible and we're studying the life of Solomon, it might be tempting to come out of that character series and think, "Oh, so the takeaway is, "Be like Solomon," or if we were studying Daniel, be like Daniel." Dare to be a Daniel, dare to serve the king. That kind of a man-centered approach. That's called anthropocentric preaching. It's man-centered preaching. It's, oh, look at Daniel, be like Daniel. Oh, look at Ruth, be like Ruth. Oh, look at Solomon, be like Solomon. But actually, that's not how the Bible is supposed to be read. The Bible often presents even great characters of the Bible as also having great flaws. And the purpose is to drive us towards God, to be theocentric, to be God-centered in our preaching. So at some junctures in the text, Solomon is a good example, chapters two, three, four, five, so forth. But other times he's a bad example. So we don't want to ever idolize the person of the text, but learn from their pluses and their minuses in order that we might focus our attention on God. So that's why we're doing chapter 11 today. And the title of this sermon is Sex, Idolatry, and Divine uh, Judgment, all of which we see here. Let me start off by um, throwing out the word restraint. So the word restraint, or I can even throw out the word discipline. The word restraint and discipline can have negative connotations or positive connotations. So if you were restraining someone, stealing them from their family to take them off to be your slave... That would be a negative use of the word restraint. But oftentimes the word restraint, even though in our desire to be free from authority and encumbrances and rules, it might sound kind of negative. The word restraint actually can be a huge blessing. So we would restrain a criminal, for example, so that he or she wouldn't keep murdering people or breaking into people's houses. We would restrain a child and their immaturity, if a toddler was running toward a pond or a river, we would restrain them. They may not like it. They might kick, holler, and scream, but we'd restrain them because we know as adults, that's not a healthy thing to do. You'll drown. We would restrain our dog if it was running out in traffic, unless we didn't like the dog. But typically, we would want to restrain the dog in order to extend its life. Well, the word restraint is something we want to unpack today. Personal restraint especially in the area of human sexuality, is a blessing. Personal discipline in the area of human sexuality is a blessing. You're only going to hear this in the church because when you walk out the doors and you listen to the ideologies of the world, they're preaching something very different. They are preaching. It is a religion. But they're preaching something very different. You can do what you want, You can do who you want. You can have sex with whoever you want. You can live for yourself. This is the message, this radical, radical freedom idea that somehow being disciplined or restrained in your sexuality is is bad, is old-fashioned, is archaic, is somehow uh, a a restriction that is going to make your life worse. But in actual fact, it's a blessing. And here's why. Human sexuality always involves the heart, the mind, the soul, the body, our affections. And we're not, we're not concerned about affections. We, we, there's a, a proper way to express your affections. God has made us sexual beings, but unrestrained sexual affection leads to a breakdown of affection for God. And it's not a, well, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It's literally an either or. If you have unrestrained sexual affections, sexual affections that are outside of God's plans and purposes, if you love someone that you shouldn't love, if you're having sex with people you shouldn't be having sex with, if you're watching or thinking things you shouldn't be watching or thinking about, you cannot at the same time maintain affection for God. And the greatest commandment is to have affection for God, to love God. So literally, this is an either or. Unrestrained sexual affection leads to a breakdown of affection for God. We simply cannot claim to be fully devoted followers of Christ, to be in love with God, to say, he's our king. We're worshiping you if we're also worshiping our bodies, if we're also worshiping sexual pleasure. And that is precisely what sexual sin is. It's literally false worship. It's the worship of the human body or the worship of someone else's body and its sexual desires and or your sexual desires. Now, God, of course, created the body. We're not not anti-sex in our church. We are pro-sex. Go check out our nursery. You see the the fruit of our sexuality. We are pro-sex. God created our bodies. They didn't evolve. God created our bodies. And God was the one that designed sexual pleasure. God was the one that designed physical attraction between males and females. That was part of his design. So we're not anti-sex. We want people to be having good, healthy sexual relationships within their marriages. We want that. But sexual sin is different. It's participating, it's using your body, it's using your mind, it's using your eyes in a way that is unrestrained and ultimately at its core, if you drill down to it, it's idolatrous. It's worshiping something you shouldn't be worshiping. We'll see this in 1 Kings chapter 11. So here's the first point. Sexual sin is idolatry and leads to more idolatry. If, you give your, if you're an unrestrained in your sexuality, you need to repent, first of all, because you're worshipping someone or something you shouldn't be worshipping, and secondly, because you were on a downward slope into further and further degradation. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, the list goes on and on and on, from the nation's Concerning which God had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Oh, is this because God is opposed to interracial marriage? No, that's not the point. But these nation groups had deities connected with their corporate worship. And if you married a woman from Moab, she was going to be worshiping the gods of Moab. And if you worship someone from Edom, you'd be, She'd be worshipping the gods of Edom. So there was a spiritual inequality here. This is not about, this is not some proof text to, to mitigate against or, or to nullify interracial or inter marriage. And the proof here is, is in the following statement. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. They, they're nationhood was linked to false worship. Now, I want you to notice the emphasis on the affections, the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You got to be careful. You ever hear people say, oh, just follow your heart. That's the last thing you want to do. Do not follow your heart. Follow the word. How do you access the word with this thing? The mind. And then you allow your mind to inform your affections. You don't allow your affections to inform your mind. But here we have a man whose heart was given over to other gods. There's a repeated usage of this word. For surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to those in love. Now, it's like, well, how many wives did this guy have? Okay. Grab hold of your seat because this is shocking. He had 700 wives. Imagine his dating budget, who were princesses, and 300 concubines on top of that. So concubinage is not something we really have a category for in the West, but they all had a legal status. Princesses were likely those that were from various alliances he'd made with neighboring noblemen and kings and tribal leaders, these women were also, also had this, a status of, of wifeliness, but they would not have been in all likelihood from some sort of royal stock. So they were considered lesser wives. It's kind of weird, but it's the way it was. And then it says, and his wives turned away his heart. Surprise, surprise. It's interesting how your spouse has such an influence upon your spirituality. This is why one of the dumbest, stupidest things you can do, Christian, is to marry an unbeliever. Like give your head a, a bit of a, a shake, if that's in your mindset. It, just, it doesn't work. Oh, but they, they're willing to come to church with me. But are they diehard followers of Christ? No, don't marry them. It leads to disaster. Because inevitably, you mutually affect one another. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. He had several years where he seemed to hold it together, but in the end, they won. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon, and here's where he becomes a syncretist, a polytheist. Solomon went after Asterith, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly, that's what God's looking for, not halfly, not quarterly, not 7 eighthsly He wants all of your heart. Wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place, it gets worse, for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. By the way, these were religions that burned their babies in public on their altars. And this theocratic king of the line of David who's supposed to be a foreshadowing of the Messiah, ruling in righteousness, is building monuments for people who want to burn their babies alive and worship to false gods. There's a lesson there for how steep the decline is into sin and depravity if you are not careful. On the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives. And how many were there? 700. Who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Again, foreign is not a proof text forbidding inter-ethnic or inter racial, as some might call it, although there is only one human race, marriage. But it's about not being unequally yoked with those that are outside of the household of faith. It's forbidden. It's forbidden. Solomon's compromise was in nearly 1,000 unequally yoked relationships. Not one, not two, nearly 1,000 unequally yoked marriages of sorts. Now, he was also a polygamist. This was not God's plan in Eden. When Adam was lonely, God didn't say, well, let me make you a thousand girls. made one. But there's three reasons why people, especially in ancient times, fell into polygamous relationships. The first one, especially for Solomon, is because it it is in the nature of the human heart to covet that which is not yours or that which you are not entitled to. You see it from the time kids are knee high to a grasshopper. They want that which is not theirs. And in the 10th commandment of our Bible, it says, do not covet your neighbor's wife or manservant or maidservant or house. So there's in, in polygamy, there's a violation of the 10th commandment. Polygamy is also the accumulation of women for sexual pleasure by men that are, frankly, too busy to build deep, meaningful, covenantal relationships with one woman for life, which takes work but is worth it. It's laziness. As is adultery, it's laziness. As is fornication, it's laziness. It's trying to take shortcuts Instead of working hard in a covenantal loving relationship for the husband to display Christ to his wife and for the wife to display the church to her groom. Secondly, it served to cement alliances with other nations to reduce the threat of attack. You may think, well, that's strategic. Not if you've got God in your side. It's not necessary. It's actually questioning God's protective capacities to do that. Why, why would he, as a theocratic king, need a little bit of help from the outside to secure his borders when he had God on his side. He could have trusted in the Lord, but instead he trusted in his political acumen, his political prowess, his political know-how to try to protect himself. Maybe if I start marrying the daughters of all the nations around me, they won't attack me. After all, you know, Bob the king next door, he's going to think twice about attacking me if his daughter lives in my palace, third, symbolism. To have a harem, which is what Solomon had, symbolized power and wealth. Now before you think, oh, and these poor women all can you believe it? They're all, hey, they were willful participants as well because this was an opportunity for them to live in a king's palace and to enjoy all of the comforts and the protection that he would afford them. But at the end of the day, His major offense was marrying multiple women from multiple worldviews, from multiple religious persuasions. Polygamy, of course, in this context, did involve a measure of covenantal or contractual status. And therefore, it differed slightly from adultery or fornication. But it is never framed in a positive way. In fact, God prior to the rule of kings, even prior to the time of the judges, had predicted in advance. This is the direction the nation was going to go. And so under Moses in the Mosaic code, he says this in Deuteronomy 17, 17, speaking of kings, which weren't even on the scene yet. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Look how prophetic God is here. Lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. God knows, God's not anti-authority. He, he allows for human authorities in this world, but power so easily corrupts. If you're in a position of influence, power, and authority, you have to be on your toes 24-7 because you can so easily start to abuse your power. And God put checks and balances in place. When you get a king, I don't want this guy collecting wives for himself or amassing gold and silver for himself. That's, that's ty- tyranny. I mean, th- even from a mathematical perspective, there's roughly, you know, give or take within a percentage point or two, the same number of women on the planet as there are men. It doesn't make sense for one guy to be collecting all the women. Imagine the thousand some odd single guys that couldn't find wives. In the ancient um, Near East, Because of Solomon's behavior. It just doesn't make sense. But Solomon forms these numerous allegiances to to assure, in his mind at least, the security of the state. Well, let's just keep that in mind. Tuck that away in your mind. He wants security in his state, right? Let's see how well that goes for him. Let's just see if he gets the kind of security that he's looking for. We're going to get there shortly. What he actually does is he undermines the security of the nation because he undermines the securer of the nation who is God alone. He undermines God's authority. He undermines Christ's law, God's laws, and therefore undermines his nation. Instead of establishing, he could have done this. He could have said, my desire is to form a dynasty of righteousness. I want my sons and my grandsons and my great-grandsons to rule on Israel's throne in righteousness. I will set the example of what covenant faithfulness looks like. I will set the example of what being a God-fearing king looks like. I will set the example on what faithfulness in marriage looks like. But instead, he chooses this multicultural, globalist, polytheist ideology and he builds a household around him where all the various ideologies and religions of his age of his global village can quote unquote live in harmony and meet all his needs and it's an absolute failure when all gods are welcomed into your home you are setting yourself up for chaos When all gods are welcomed in your nation, you are setting yourself up for absolute chaos. And yet so often that which is logical and true and righteous becomes obscure and cloudy in our mind because we're listening to this thing. I'm going to listen to my heart, but she's so stinking cute. I have to have her, but it feels so good to have a different woman every single night of the week. And so he listens to his heart, but his heart leads him astray. And then he even is dragged along by them, away from God, into public, the public worship of false deities. The public worship of false deities. And we see this in the, in the modern era. I saw this article this week of a Lutheran church. You know who Martin Luther was? Like one of the key players in the Reformation I saw a church advertising that their pastor is also a certified witch and priestess who in this Lutheran church has essentially tossed out the vestiges of Christianity while still calling itself a Lutheran church and literally worshiping the equivalent of Shemosh and Moloch in their church in the modern era. Nothing new under the sun, folks. It's just repackaged. Well, that just doesn't happen overnight. You don't just go from following the teachings of Christ to dressing up like a witch and preaching lies and nonsense in the church. It starts with giving your heart away to foreign ideologies, to building alliances and relationships to people that serve another God, to compromising in the area of sexuality, to allowing your heart to lead you, which is always a disaster. And what we see here is this this inextricable link between sexuality and idolatry. You see, the more sexually unrestrained a person is, or a people group is, the more idolatrous they become, and the more idolatrous they become, the more sexually unrestrained they become. There is a direct link between your worldview and your sex views. Worldviews are often communicated through your sexuality. So what are some aspects to the Christian worldview that are actually communicated through our sexuality? How about this? Covenant. That's kind of a major theme in scripture. How about this? Selflessness. How about faithfulness? Gospel. Gospel i.e. Ephesians 5, redemption, forgiveness, headship, maleness, femaleness, procreation, new life, new birth. All of these beautiful biblical concepts are communicated through Christian sexuality. The way we have sex, the way we view sex, the way men act, the way women act, communicate, not so subtly, the gospel to the watching world. On the other hand, unbiblical sexual norms communicate what? Self-pleasure. It's all about you. Autonomy. Hedonism. Radical egalitarianism. It starts with, there's no difference between men and women. And then it goes to, well there's actually no there's no such thing as men and women. Like there's there's no categories anymore. Like nothing matters anymore. Genderlessness. So as we see in Solomon's life, the more women he bedded, the more gods he worshiped. The more women he bedded, the more gods he worshiped. He became Dulled, his conscience was seared to the exclusive, jealous, holy, covenantal, life-giving, creational, faithful, merciful nature of the true and living God. And there's absolutely no way, there's absolutely no way that any of these 1,000 women that he was with were satisfied with that relationship. There's no way. Oh, i get to go on a date with him once every three years. He doesn't even know my name. What kind of a relationship is that? Some of the ladies in the room might com- complain legitimately at times. Their husband doesn't pay enough interest in them. Well, imagine have, having a thousand other ladies living in the house. I mean, talk about an absolute tragic paradigm for life in relationships. Now, most crazy of all is that somehow he rationalized that he could still worship the true and living God while participating in sin. Hmm. Any of us ever done that? Rationalizing that somehow we can still worship the true and living God while worshiping a pantheon of false gods. Well, I don't. Wor- I just worship one God. Well, actually, no. If you're involved in sexual sin, you are an idolater. You are obeying self over God. And when you put self over God's law, you're worshiping self. So, minimally, you got two gods involved in the mix. Maybe more. In the modern church, it's a problem. Many Christians have been through multiple marriages, somehow justifying their fresh marriage because they get a fresh marriage license. After all, if the government says we're married, we must be married. Many Christians in the modern church admit to the regular habitual use of pornographic materials, viewing, reading, observing that which is of the world and of the flesh and which only brings destruction and actually the dulling of your sexual appetites. If you want to ruin yourself sexually, by the way, and be impotent by 50, view pornography. Let me know how it goes for you. If you want to destroy your sex life, view pornography, young people. Go for it. Because even non-Christian Counselors will tell you that there is a significant increase in a loss of sexual appetite and impotence among people in their late 30s and 40s and 50s, which is pretty young, because they've literally burned themselves out sexually. So you want to ruin your sex life, go ahead and view some pornography and let me know how it goes for you. Immodest attire. The Bible says something about how we dress. We don't need to come to church in sackcloth dresses. But we do need to be careful not to participate in the latest styles and fashions if they happen to be sexually provocative. But it's a problem in the church. Exploratory sex, premarital exploratory sex. This notion, well, I better try the person out to make sure it works. It actually doesn't work that way. But after all, I can go to church on Sundays and God's merciful and forgiving. This is an abuse of God's grace and an abuse of God's mercy. And if it's a habitual ongoing problem in your life, it's actually a mark that you are not a Christian at all. So this should warn you and make you a little little afraid. Have we considered how idolatrous sexual sin actually is? We often think of it as, well, you know, yeah, I'm uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm looking at things I shouldn't be looking at. Or I'm using my sexual organs in ways that I shouldn't be. It's far more than that. We're integrated beings. And we give ourselves to that which we worship. Sexual sin is one thing, but it's actually a violation of the first commandment as well. put another God in front of the true and living God. Now, just to kind of scare us back into uh, reality here a little bit, we also need to talk about God's judgment. Because one of the patterns we see in the Bible is when his people sin, God is loving enough to pursue them and to discipline and, and to judge them so that they might experience the consequences and punishment for their own sin, but also be examples to the world around them. So we have God judging sexual sin. And the way he does it, there's a corporate judgment and there's a a very personal judgment here. And the corporate judgment that Solomon uh, receives is a loss of respect, a loss of legacy, and a loss of authority. which, Which are pretty significant consequences for sexual sin. So think about this in your own life. If you want to lose the respect of others, you want to lose your legacy. You want to ruin those that will come after you. And you want to lose your authority, your influence over other people. Participate in sexual sin. But if you choose righteousness, people's respect for you increases. Your legacy is expanded and your influence and authority grows. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, notice it's habitual, and you have not kept this command, my uh, covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Surely, I automatically think of Genesis three, where God said, you will surely die. I mean, saying you're going to die is one thing, but there's an emphasis here being put on it. This is, you can take this to the bank. I mean, this is absolutely going to happen. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. So in other words, I'm not going to pin this on David. I'm going to pin this on you. And the way I'm going to pin it on you is the primary consequence is going to be seen in your legacy descendants and the king that will come after you. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Well, you can probably pick up on the fact that God's a bit angry here, and God's allowed to be angry at sin. If you don't understand the anger of God, you have a deficient theology. God, God has righteous anger. And the anger of God is always righteous. And his righteousness guards his holiness and guards his laws, which are an expression of his holiness. And so he issues a warning and he issues a verdict. Here's the consequence. But even in that, we see patience and mercy. Because it's going to take a little bit of time before it comes to fruition. And he will maintain his covenantal love for a remnant. Through the line of David Obviously, we know now because we're New Testament believers, up to and including Christ. Well, you can imagine that legacy was a big deal for, for kings, especially in a hereditary monarchy. Legacy is a big deal. Now, I wish maybe we thought a little bit more about legacy. <laughs> I, I think, I think we think too little about it because we tend to be very individualistic. I mean, most of us don't even know the names of our grandparents or great grandparents. And there's a rise of incidents in our culture where people abandon their children. But legacy is kind of an important biblical principle woven into God's covenantal people. To not have a king that would come from your body to sit on the throne was a big deal. To lose land and territory after you've gone into all these alliances hoping to maintain them is a big deal. And yet God forewarns that his reign over the 12 tribes would be massively reduced. He would just get one tribe. Now, technically, he gets two, Judah and Benjamin. But because Judah was, Benjamin was so small, it's just always called Judah. So it's kind of thought of as one tribe from there forward. And the rest of it would be lost. God's desire would be to maintain a remnant of the house of David leading up to the the Messiah, who would come from David's line. From Judah, not not one of the other 11 would come Christ. This is why it says here, Jerusalem, that I have chosen. This is not so much about God's particular interest in a piece of real estate, but in everything that it symbolizes and the people, his covenantal people that claim this real estate as their capital. So it's not so much about the real estate, it's about reminding people of God's covenantal love and faithfulness to his covenantal people. And the consequence of Solomon's actions were significant So much for your legacy. So much for any respect that you've been afforded. So much for your authority. It's all going to be reduced. Now there's a second way that God judges sexual sin, which is a little more personal. God judges sexual sin through a loss of security and through a loss of peace. And watch for this in your own life too. You want to become less secure, less stable, more chaotic? Be promiscuous. You want less peace? In the tumultuous moments of life, disobey God in the area of your sexuality. And peace will flee. And security will flee. Now, peace is a pretty big deal for the people of God. We often pray for it, that God would give us peace. That we'd have peace that surpasses human understanding. That there'd be peace on earth. That we'd live at peace with one another. That we'd be peacemakers. In Isaiah 9-7, our king is called the Prince of Peace. Peace is a big deal for us, and we want it, and we need it. It's a beautiful gift. But with sexual sin comes a removal of God's protection, and peace and security are no more. This is how it expressed itself through three political adversaries that God raised up to destabilize Solomon's kingdom. The first man, his name was Hadad. Hadad? And Hadad was an Edomite. It says in verse 14, And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. This is one of the competing nations. And previous, in the previous generation, they'd been defeated by David and his general Joab. For when David was in Edom, and Joab the commander of the army went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until they had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child, a little child with a big memory. Then fast forward to verse 21. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers, meaning died, and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, "'Let me depart, that I may go up to my own country.'" Now, Pharaoh never likes people to leave his country once they're in. So Pharaoh said to him, what have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he just said to him, only let me depart. So Hadad comes and he causes political turmoil for Solomon to get vengeance for his forebears that had been killed by the righteous King David. God also raised up an adversary to him, Rezin, the son of Eliadah, who had fled from his master, Hadad Ezer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band. So in other words, he's like a domestic terrorist. Pretty hard to catch those sorts after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and then made him king in Damascus. So he gets a promotion. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. So we have a big problem in Hadad. We have a big problem in Rezin. And now, now there's an even bigger problem for Solomon's security and peace in the form of a man by the name of Jeroboam, who is from his own people. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite. So this means he's a Jew. He's one of the, he's from one of the, the half-tribes of Joseph. There's no tribe of Joseph. He gets two half-tribes. One of them is Ephraim. Uh, Zaretta, a servant of Solomon, whose mother was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. So now this is the backstory to how that happened. Solomon built the Milo. What's the Milo? We don't know specifically, but it was some sort of of likely a, a stepped or tiered military gate, certainly some sort of an architectural edifice that Solomon had built, and it was pretty significant. And it he needed someone to oversee the process. So when he was building building the Milo, it says enclosed up the breach of the, the city of David, his father. So it is some sort of a military fortification, a, something to do with the security of the the, the capital. The man Jeroboam was very able. When Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Well, so this is a guy that's in his inner circle. He's in his parliament, if you will. He's one of his right-hand men. And yet he is visited by a prophet. And here's how that all comes about. And at that time when Jeroboam... When out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now, we all know that the prophets of the Old Testament were pretty interesting characters. They often participated in dramatic activities in order to make a point, to speak on God's behalf, to get the attention of whoever they're prophesying to. And this is one of those instances. Now, Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment. And the two of them were alone in the open country. And then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. That'd be a little odd, wouldn't it? You're walking on the road, you meet some guy, he rips his robe off and shreds it into 12 pieces. You'd think he was a nut. But actually, this was a prophetic utterance from God. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and will give you 10 tribes. That's the lion's share. That's like one-sixth of all the tribes, or or five-sixths of all the tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. So his his accurate quoting of what God said further affirms that he is actually God's, God's prophet. What he's saying is accurate. Then to verse 35, but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, 10 tribes. Yet to his son, I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. Now, he then gives this Qualification, because it's a covenantal relationship. There's a there's a qualification here. The same kind of thing he gave to Saul, David, Solomon, to the righteous kings of old. There's there's a there's a certain qualification that you, you have to abide by in order to retain kingly rights. For if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did. I will be with you and I will build you a sure house, a legacy. As I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. See, God's punishment is always limited. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. There's always mercy, even in punishment. Always. There's always mercy, even in punishment. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. So he could have repented. And God could have changed his mind. Now, God's changing of his mind is always in keeping with his sovereign plan. That's how it's framed up in Scripture to help us to understand the work of God. But instead, he becomes jealous at Jeroboam. So Jeroboam fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. It really, it really is sad, I think. It's just, it's just a really sad ending to an otherwise great life. And not only a great life, but a man with great opportunities. You have great opportunities too. Many of you have decades in front of you. Great opportunities to serve the Lord. Don't blow it. Don't end your life on a note like this. Losing your respect. Respect losing your legacy, losing your authority, losing your security, losing your peace. Sin is the biggest false advertiser of all. It always promises the world and it delivers hell. That's all it delivers. It promises the world and it delivers hell. Here his reign ends after 40 years, just like David, but he's not replaced by a wise king. He's replaced by a fool. Because that's what he had become. He'd become a fool. He had worshipped false gods. See, brothers and sisters, without leadership taking this seriously, without the leadership of a nation walking in humility before the Lord, even in our own country, the nation will inevitably and necessarily descend into chaos and disorder. This isn't just some Old Testament thing. It's happened time and time again in the home In the home, without a moral compass guiding the husband, there's chaos. Without a moral compass guiding parents, there's chaos in their children. Without a moral compass guiding the church, there's chaos. Suddenly, they're dressing up as witches, flying flags that represent the ideologies of hell redefining gender and marriage in churches. Frankly, the antichrist churches of our culture are a greater threat than our government. My own son, when he was in seminary, told me he had a professor that told him that he had done his doctoral dissertation studying the effects, the liberalizing effects of the United Church in Canada upon the state. And in his dissertation, he concluded that the United Church of Canada, which used to be a stalwart denomination of Bible teaching churches, was actually always ahead of the state and their falsehoods and ideologies and actually affected the Canadian state and pulled it away from God in large part. A failed church pulling the government that is, quote-unquote, secular, away from God. The church, the church's stance for righteousness or the church's wholesale abandonment of God's righteousness, kid you not, has a massive effect on the trajectory of a nation. And when the visible church is compromised, then we should expect that our parliaments will be compromised and our courts will be compromised and our educational institutions will be compromised. See, without a moral compass guiding the church, there is chaos. Without a moral compass guiding a nation, there is chaos. There is chaos. We see it in Scripture. We see it in history. We see it in Canada. You want to get some people offended? Tell them this. Tell them Canada's broken. Oh, it's not broken. What kind of a patriot are you? It's not broken. You should have an optimistic view of Canada. Well, Canada is broken. And it's broken in the sense that it is broken away from God and his laws. You can even fix the economy and it'll still be broken as long as it forsakes God and his laws. And there's no political solution to this apart from repentance. And we pray for it. Here we have the sad consequences of one man's ridiculous choices and hedonistic behavior ruining people for generations to come. Here's how it ends with his life. Now, the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom or they're not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon. Too bad he didn't live it out. You can preach, you can pontificate, you can tweet, you can write, you can lyricize great songs, you can earn your degrees, know your theology left, right, up, down, and center. But if you don't put it into practice, it's all for naught. He didn't put his wisdom into practice. And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem... Overall, Israel was 40 years, and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Not a smart man. His son reigned in his place. Well, at the beginning of this message, I mentioned to you that this is Biblical Sexuality Sunday. And what we mean by that, why we've chosen to identify this day for this purpose is that in January of 2022, the Canadian Parliament passed a bill. And they didn't put it into some obscure municipal bylaw or make it a provincial statute. They decided, we're so serious about this bill, we're going to put it into our criminal code. It's the biggest hammer in their toolbox to coerce your behavior. And they decided to pass this bill called the Conversion Therapy Bill. And the essence of the bill, this is their language, is to criminalize any practice... Any treatment or any service, that's their language, practice, treatment or service that would dare offer counsel to someone to abandon their false sexualities, their sinful sexualities and conform with God's law. They said they decided in all of their great wisdom to make any act to quote unquote, they call convert someone from false ideologies about sexuality to biblical ones, a criminal offense. Now, the bill is especially blasphemous because it implies that the Bible is a myth. It states that this idea of heterosexual normality that's a myth. So that's a direct attack upon Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. It's a direct attack upon God's laws. Now, we all know that this is not not about protecting people. This is not about protecting people from some abusive maniac that's hooking up electrodes to them to try to get them to change their sexuality, which doesn't even happen in our country. It's not what it's about. This is a weapon designed to silence the church. It's a weapon designed to silence the life-changing, blessed and benevolent power of the gospel, to move us from chaos and disorder to order and beauty and life eternal. Because every aspect of our humanity must be conformed to the image of Christ. But the reason why they're so concerned about us confronting sexuality in particular, not, not coercing or converting people in the area of their sexuality, is they know this. When someone is converted sexually, they are converted spiritually. When someone is converted spiritually, they are converted sexually. It's one and the same. Your sexuality is part and parcel of your spirituality. Your spirituality and your sexuality are not two different realms of life. In order to be converted sexually, you have to be converted spiritually. Because we're integrated beings. What this actually is, is simply an attempt to codify, to put into print, the immorality long promoted in our country, to which the church has largely been silent. And all it brings is further confusion and divine judgment. How have we done over the past two years since this bill came into law? Have we gotten better? Are people more balanced in their sexuality? No, we've we've completely taken out all the stops and we're literally animalistic in our sexuality. You can have sex pretty much with whatever you want, however you want, pretending to be whoever you want. It's just like it makes, it would make the people of Sodom and Gomorrah blush. And unfortunately, much of the church has been passive and weak. And we can't afford to be any longer. If we want to have any legacy, any hope of seeing our, nation turned. Individual Christians can hide behind their clergy. Preach it, brother. Uh, Yeah, no, we all need to do that. We need to preach it. We need to teach it. We all need to get in the fight. Not just letting the clergy, pushing the clergy out front, or a few little groups of people out front. We all need to speak the truth to calmly, rationally, lovingly, courageously, which are not mutually exclusive, Speak the word of God into the darkness. And the more we speak and the more here we can trust that God will be faithful to use his word to bring transformation. Because that's what his word does. It brings transformation. <clears throat> now, you probably haven't thought much about all the lights that are above your head right now. You've just taken them for granted. We're in a room. There's lights. I haven't thought much about it. But now you're conscious of the lights. You're probably looking at a few of them. But you'd be... Very conscious of the lights, if we just turned all the lights out in this room, just let it go completely black, and then all of a sudden I just shine a flashlight out into the audience. Right? So you're more conscious of light when it's rare. You're more conscious of light when you can't take it for granted. And I think that we live at a beautiful time in history because as dark as the world has become morally this is an opportunity to shine the light of the gospel and all of its rarity out into the world. And, and it'll get people's attention because what we stand for, what we believe, has become remnant theology. It's very rare. It's very rare for people to actually be married now for 50, 60, 70 years. That's a testimony. It's rare to be able to say to the guys, you know, at work, yeah, I'm not interested in looking at your pornos. It's rare to speak well of your spouse that you've been married to for a long, 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 long time. That's that's rare. It's rare to say, yeah, yeah, I don't go to strip clubs when I'm off on some business trip. That's rare. That's a testimony. It's rare. Whoever thought this would be the case? It's rare to meet a manly man that actually acts like a man and not like a fruitcake. It's rare rare to meet a feminine woman that is nurturing and bold and courageous, but loving and wants to be a mother and wants to be married and wants to submit to her husband instead of acting like a dude. It's rare, but it's part of our testimony. So the good news is, is that the darker it gets, the brighter the gospel shines. And this is our generation. And this is our time to shine for Christ. And the darkness will not overcome the church. The darkness will not overcome the church. So know this, your personal purity matters. It's part of your testimony. It's not just you and Jesus. It's part of your testimony to maintain personal purity. Your testimony, the way you talk, the way you act, the way you communicate your values, the way you respond to lies, folks, it matters. Your public sexuality matters. The pictures you post on Facebook of yourself, they matter. If they're modest, they communicate something. If they're immodest, they communicate something very differently. When you celebrate your 10th, your 20th, your 30th anniversary in a public way, it matters. It shows it's possible to be committed to one woman or one man for life. It matters. And then when you sin, the way you deal with that matters. When when Solomon was confronted, there's no reference of of, of repentance. We all sin. First thing we do, we repent. That matters. That's part of our testimony. Not our perfection, but our repentant humility before God. So let's walk differently than the Gentiles do in holiness and righteousness before God. Men, be men. Don't be ashamed of being a man. Ladies, be a woman. Don't be ashamed of being a woman. Remain sexually pure until marriage, it matters. Remain true to your marital covenant, it matters. If you're struggling in this area, step number one, pray the Lord's prayer. Deliver us from temptation. You pray that when you're about to have a second look, it'll work. God will be true to his promises. You don't pray afterwards. You pray before. Deliver us from temptation. Someone's flirting with you at work. They're coming on to you at work. Deliver me from temptation. Then do what Joseph did. Get your your sandals on and get out the door. You might even be arrested for it afterwards. You might be accused by the Me Too movement. He was. But he did the right thing, and God ultimately honored him. Maintain short accounts with God. Learn to be disciplined. Learn restraint. It matters, and you'll be blessed. Let's walk different than the Gentiles do in holiness and righteousness before God. This is our act of worship.